Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And we will be focusing our attention on verses 57 to 68. Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 to 68. And if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What do you think when you hear the word justice? It's important for us to understand this word biblically because justice, as outlined and defined and commanded by the Lord, the God of Israel, was for Israel and is for us also one of the central, primary, and most important aspects of the Mosaic law. God's will for and among his people as they were entering into the nation or into the land. See, God gave these commands, the first five books of the, the, the law in the first five books of the Bible, as Israel stood at the borders of Canaan, the promised land, ready to enter in and to take possession of their inheritance from the Lord. And so God instructed the nation in the way of justice and mandated that their entire existence in the land be characterized by an intense commitment to justice. Ensuring that all peoples, whether sojourner, foreigner, or citizen, 
whether man or woman, whether rich or poor, whether influential or of no account, were all to be treated and judged justly in accordance with God's legal code. The Lord set before Israel the fairest, the most righteous, most principled, most virtuous system of justice known to mankind. But unfortunately, the biblical definition of justice has been obscured by those who have co-opted the word and redefined it to describe the exact opposite of what God commands in his word. When you look, for example, at the American system, even at the Canadian system, when you enter into a courtroom, not that I've ever been in one, just so you know, I've never been in a courtroom. There is a statue of a woman holding scales. And on her eyes, she has a blindfold to symbolize and to represent the equal application of the law to the people in that courtroom, regardless of their status, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they're from. Fallen and corrupt societies have a way of taking things that are biblical, something that belongs to God, something that is His, something that is defined by Himself, something that He has defined and designed to reveal his own glorious perfections and attributes and redefining it so that it promotes some sinful perversion, some wicked depravity instead. And so when you hear our culture speak of justice in our particular time, in our particular place, in our particular cultural moment, it means oftentimes something different than what scripture has revealed to us. The sort of justice that dominates the news cycles in our day is that of social justice. Social justice desires and hopes for and fights to attain a weighted system. A system that is designed to benefit certain peoples or groups that the community deems oppressed or marginalized. Oppressed or marginalized by the nation they live in or by the population in which they find themselves, whether currently or historically. In our day, if an individual or a group can define themselves as a victim, that they, whether in reality or whether in their own minds, can say that we've been mistreated or exploited in some way, that we are underprivileged or that we are underrepresented in wider society, then justice is the weighting of the system in their favor. Against those they've concluded, possess power and privilege both at this moment and or historically. And the system is weighted in their favor to give to them what they deem or what they think they deserve or what they think is owed to them. The supposedly disadvantaged individuals or groups, as defined by themselves or our culture, must be given advantage and priority and precedence. They must be given power by the system, which must again be weighted by those who ident they identify, weighted against those they identify as privileged in order to make up for any past or present wrongs. Ultimately, justice in our day speaks to a system that is weighted in favor of the poor, 
waited in favor of the downtrodden, waited in favor of the self-proclaimed victim, or on the other hand, waited in favor of the rich or the influential or the powerful in society. Either way, everybody wants the system weighted in their favor. As I was looking up articles and reading different people's views on this subject, I came across an article on the CBC website that was titled this, Let's Remove the Blindfold from Lady Justice. This is where we are. They were upset with the idea that justice is blind and justice is neutral and justice is impartial for all peoples, but they would rather see the system weighted or partial to certain groups of people. Now, I want to compare that to what we read in Scripture. Right? Let's compare and contrast this weighted system to what we read in the law and the Word of God. The Word of God prescribes and speaks to this subject in many places throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 3, we read this, You shall not be partial to the poor man in his lawsuit. And again, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. Now, I want you to be here listening for a common theme, okay? Again, Leviticus 19, 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Again, in Deuteronomy, as Moses charged those he had tasked with being judges throughout the nation of Israel, he told them this in Deuteronomy 1, 16 and 17. You hear cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien, meaning the foreigner or the non-citizen who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. Did you hear that? Do not let anyone intimidate you. Do not let anyone's heartstrings pull you in the direction of weighting the system in their favor. If their response is angry, if their influence is strong, if their station and class is pressing against you, if their financial abundance is tempting you to, get to, to judge in their favor, stop it. Don't do it. Justice is to be blind and impartial. Judge righteously. And again, in Deuteronomy 16, 18, and 20, Moses said this, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the peoples with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Listen, justice and only justice shall you follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Did you hear the consistent theme? Impartial, impartial, impartial. The Lord commanded the nation of Israel to be a people of justice, and by justice he meant applying the word and the law of God to all peoples impartially and fairly. It meant equal treatment without any partiality for any and all people in the land of Israel, whether you were a citizen or a foreigner. 
The rich were not given special treatment because they were rich and had influence, nor were the poor given preferential treatment because their lives were difficult and filled with hardship. Equal, impartial application of God's perfect, holy, righteous, and just law. The law of God applied equally to each and every one, regardless of their station in life. And every single Israelite, think about the confidence this would bring up in you. Every single Israelite could be confident that if or when they appeared in court to either sue for justice or defend themselves from an injustice, the perfect, righteous law of God would be applied impartially. They didn't have to worry about a bribed judge. They didn't have to worry about the poor telling the best story or the rich using their money or their influence to bribe the system. Impartial, unbiased application of God's holy law to every person regardless of who they are. And this principle of impartiality among the people of God, it continues on in our relationships in the New Testament with one another. You remember, right, James, when he wrote in his letter, in James chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So you see, in all cases, allowing partiality to govern our life together as a body is out of bounds. We're not partial to the poor because they are poor, nor are we partial to the rich because they are rich. Some like to sidle up to the rich, telling them what they want to hear because they hope somehow, some way to benefit from their riches. Some prefer to fight for the poor because the stories of the poor tug the heartstrings. No bias, but fairness and impartiality. We are to love one another, to rebuke one another, to exhort one another, to encourage one another without reference to any of these other things. We look at each other as souls traveling the narrow path, trying to be holy, trying to obey the Lord, and we help one another and we speak the truth to one another in gracious tones regardless of a person's station, regardless of a person's influence, regardless of any other social factors. God calls for fairness in our dealings with one another. But not fairness as defined by our word, which is a weighted system, but fair as defined by his word, which is the treating of others in accordance with his will and his command. But as you know, if you're paying attention, you know that and can see in our society that the perfect, balanced, and impartial system of justice that God has designed is oftentimes thrown out the window. And should you so desire, you can find stories of partiality, which, by the way, is injustice. You can find them over and over again for both the rich and powerful and the poor and marginalized. It's always been the case that one of the most difficult things to maintain is true biblical justice. 
even by those to whom that responsibility has been specifically tasked, as it had been for the religious leaders in Israel, who on this night, when Jesus was betrayed, violated almost every conceivable law of justice that had been set down by God. As they weighted the system in favor, in their favor, in order to secure a conviction against an innocent man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to explore the numerous breaches of and transgressions against justice by the leaders on this night as they brought Jesus to trial. See, after praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas approached Jesus with a large crowd holding sticks and clubs and swords. And as Judas walked up to Jesus, he betrayed his rabbi with a kiss. And the soldiers then walked up to Jesus and took hold of him and led him away. We read it in verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. So when we come to verse 57, we come to what are called the Jewish trials of Jesus. After these trials, he'll then be sent off to Pilate for the Roman trials. Matthew will only speak to one of the trials, but in fact, on this occasion, there are three. John refers to one just prior to this here with Caiaphas, and Luke will record one that takes place in the morning where the same set of questions are asked again. So the first trial is recorded in John chapter 18. We read it in verses 12 and 13 and 19 to 24. Let me read it for you. This happens before he gets to Caiaphas. The band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. The high priest, that's Annas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Jesus wasn't immediately, as we see in Matthew, brought to Caiaphas, but first to Annas who many consider the real power behind the, high, the position of high priest. See, he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas and father or father-in-law to four other high priests. So many consider Annas to be kind of the puppet master controlling and manipulating the high priests for quite a long period of time. So his voice carried a bit of weight in these days. If you look, when the soldier strikes him, he said this, is this strikes Jesus, it says, is this how you answer the high priest? Talking about Annas, but Annas isn't the high priest, Caiaphas is the high priest, but they still call Annas the high priest, which goes to show uh, how much weight Annas' voice still carries. And Jesus, in response to Annas' questions about his teaching, told him to do his own homework. If you want to know what I've taught, 
It's not too difficult to find out. Go, ask anyone. Everyone heard me. I taught openly. But in violation of justice, no, one, no effort was actually made to seek and find what Jesus taught. No one went out and took Jesus up on his word to figure out what he was saying and what he was teaching and what his disciples were like. Nobody did that. Nobody went to, de- to, de- to determine whether what Jesus had actually said necessitated an arrest. Annas didn't look at the soldiers and say to them, what are you men doing? Let this man go. He hasn't done anything worthy of you arresting him and striking him. No, what Annas did was instead he bound Jesus, he tied him up, he secured him, and sent him to Caiaphas. And this trial before Caiaphas is no impartial trial. Their goal, their preset goal, was to kill Jesus. They'd already decided that this was the end result of their time with Jesus. But in order to secure that death sentence, they needed to convict Jesus of some sort of capital offense. Something that would convince the Romans to sign off on the death sentence because the Jews could not actually carry out executions without Roman approval. But Jesus, up to this point, he's been a rather peaceful man. You can read about him paying his taxes. He was a law-abiding man. And so what reason would Rome have to put such a man to death? None. And so in complete violation of the laws of justice that these very religious leaders were called to uphold, they only searched for what they could use to secure a conviction they were already committed to finalizing. And so Jesus was led to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were all gathered for this trial. And just that is a violation of Jewish law. This meeting violated both the actual law of God against partial trials, and it also violated the Jewish laws and traditions. What a bunch of hypocrites these men were. Do you remember how angry and how upset that these men got when Jesus, when they saw Christ's disciples eating without washing their hands? Do you remember that? Back in Matthew chapter 15, verse 2, they came all the way from Jerusalem, looked at Jesus' disciples, saw that they just ate without ceremonially washing their hands, and they went up to them and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. They got really agitated by this. And yet here they are, completely ignoring all of the customs and traditions and regulations of their fathers and their elders in regards to what constitutes a fair and impartial trial. Which one of these is weightier matter? Jewish law dictated that no trials, not one, takes place in the darkness of night. Or during a festival like the Passover. And yet, here they are. Jesus is bound and brought to Caiaphas in the darkness of night. And in that darkness, they conduct this trial. Jewish law also dictated that trials could only be held in an official meeting place. 
the place that is designed for that purpose. And in Jerusalem, that place would be the temple. But here, they're not at the temple. Here, they are at the house of Caiaphas, the private resident of Caiaphas. Jewish law declared that only acquittals could be declared on the same day as the trial itself. So in this, this here, it's called the Mishnah, which is the, the words of the rabbis and the teachings of the rabbis as they sought to apply the word of God. And so as they speak about what constitutes a fair trial, it says, this is one of the, one of the rabbis, they taught this, if they find the man innocent, meaning in a trial, they set him free. Otherwise, meaning if they don't find him innocent, then they leave his sentence over until either one to three days. For what purpose do they leave it over for one to three days? Maybe new evidence might show up. Or maybe the one who is seeking justice might be overcome by mercy. But as we will see, the verdict against Jesus in violation of Jewish law is pronounced in a matter of minutes. The high priest and his cronies here on this night betrayed nearly every single one of the safeguards that were established for a fair trial because they hated Jesus that much. They hated him so much that they broke their own standards and they broke the just laws of God to see to it that his trial led to his execution. This is such a dangerous game to play, isn't it? To use the legal system to appease your own desire to hold on to power or to use the legal system and weight it in your favor so that you might eliminate those that you are furiously angry with, that you are insanely jealous of. The short-sightedness of such a practice cannot be overstated. What we must do is follow God's law and let the system remain impartial. I was reading this book called Why Johnny Can't Preach. Great book. And he has a little footnote in here when he speaks, because uh, in many ways the uh, North American legal systems were based on biblical precedences. And talking about Thomas Jefferson and John Witherspoon, both signers of uh, the documents that led to the American Republic being founded and formed, uh, but also both being on opposite sides of the spectrum in terms of how they viewed different things in the legal system, we read this. Thomas Jefferson never lost a night's sleep fearing that Witherspoon would use federal power to coerce him. And Witherspoon never lost a night's sleep fearing that Jefferson would use federal power to coerce him. Each believed in liberty and impartiality and was assured that the other did also. It's one of my favorite quotes that I've read in a long time. See the benefit of following God's way? Impartial. Go to bed. Go to sleep. Amen. I love sleeping, so it's good. Matthew continues. 
As Jesus was brought into the high priest, we read in verse 58 that Peter was following Jesus at a distance. As far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Matthew tells us that it was Peter, Peter was following behind, but John tells us that he was also following. In John chapter 18, verse 15, he writes, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. That's John's way of referencing himself. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So John got a little bit further access into the trial. But Peter went as far as the courtyard, and he sat outside with the guards to watch the final stages, to watch the conclusion, to watch the outcome of the proceedings. And as Peter sat with the guards, and John went in to hear the trial, we read in verse 59, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking, listen to that, seeking, and what were they seeking? False testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. You see that? They were seeking. That word here is in the imperfect tense. That means that they sought and they kept on seeking. They were trolling for it, calling people consistently and persistently, come up and give false testimony, come up and give false testimony. While they may not have said it so explicitly, that's what they kept on looking for, for testimony that they knew to be false because, because they knew that there was nothing with which to charge Jesus. And it was for this reason they knew they couldn't charge Jesus because Jesus had never done anything wrong. You see the wonder of Jesus here, don't you? He lived such a magnificent life, such a perfect life, that the religious leaders, as they seek to find something to charge him with, knew that they wouldn't find anything, knew that they couldn't find any honest testimony against this man that would convict him of any crime. So they had to seek false testimony. And even that was next to impossible to find. Once again, we see these religious leaders, the ones that were tasked with upholding biblical justice, violating it. And Scripture has much to say about this, much to say about the wickedness and the evil of bearing false witness. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Israel was to be, because Israel was to be a nation of justice, God commanded them in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is on the charter of Israel's life in the land. In fact, this is one of the contexts, this is one of the reasons, that of bearing false witness, that we get the well-known eye-for-an-eye penalty. Deuteronomy 16, 19, or Deuteronomy 19, verse 16 to 21, reads like this. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. You hear that? You shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother, and so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear it and fear, and, you sh and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity." You see the seriousness with which the Lord takes bearing false witness. If someone does this and it's proven, your eye shall not pity. 
Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. You see how seriously the leaders in Israel were to take this? The justice of God called for the false witness to bear the punishment they intended by their false witness for their false witness. And this was meant to be a deterrent in the land, a deterrent to this wicked deed of bearing false testimony against an innocent man. And again, the warning rings out in Exodus 23, verses 1 and 2. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with many so as to pervert justice. Such is false testimony, lying, showing partiality to rich or poor in their case, siding with the crowds against what is right. And so what these leaders ought to have done on this night as Jesus stands bound and tied up in front of them was to gather the facts. It was actually to postpone it till the daylight and then to gather up the facts without any partiality. And the crowds should have, the crowds that were standing there, they should have, as Israelites, the people of God, knowing the law of God, understanding the necessity of justice, pointed out to those leaders the injustices that were taking place in this trial. But the religious leaders just kept seeking false testimony with an eye to putting him in death, to putting him to death, meaning they already had the end in mind. They were not interested in a fair, biblically faithful, just, and impartial trial. And the fact that false witnesses came forward and continued to come forward should have been met with the penalties that they were seeking for from Je- in Jesus. They were seeking his execution, so every single one of these false witnesses ought to have themselves faced execution. Remember, an eye for an eye. But the religious leaders, again, in their supreme hypocrisy, overlooked this. You see, those who bore false witness didn't seem to bother them. And these people who kept coming forward did not seem to think that they would pay any price for their violation of so central a command of God. But even though they kept searching for something to accuse Jesus with, even with all these false witnesses relentlessly coming forward to accuse Jesus of different things, verse 60 said, they found none. Meaning, they found nothing they could use to secure a conviction against him. Even though, verse 60, many false witnesses came forward. See, they tried to circumvent the rules, but even they couldn't ignore them all. And one of the big commands in the Old Testament was the Old Testament's restriction on executing a person based on the testimony of a single witness. The Lord commanded Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And to ensure that this was followed, the rabbis of the past, in the Mishnah here, had established a system whereby they asked each witness a series of questions independent from one another 
to see if they could verify the facts of a case. The record of these, uh, of these questions is found in this Mishnah, where we read that they asked each person a series of seven questions. In what week of years? In what year? In what month? On what date in the month? On what day? In what hour? In what place? And if there was a, an accusation of idolatry, they would continue. They'd go, did you warn him? If a man committed idolatry, what did he worship and how did he worship it? And others would even go so far. See, this is how committed that some of these guys were to justice. Some of them would go so far as to say, this one rabbi, Ben Zakai, once tested the evidence by inquiring even to the colors of the stocks that were on the figs behind the activity. The rabbis were indeed actually quite committed to seeking justice in previous generations, and it actually created quite a fair system where they diligently sought accurate information and tested the stories of witnesses quite vigorously, except on this night when it came to Jesus. But even so, they'd asked the false witnesses these questions independently, and seeing that this trial had been hastily concocted in the dead of night, no one's stories matched, no one could pass this test. Until, verse 61, or verse 60, at last, two came forward. You can imagine Caiaphas sitting there like, all right, two witnesses, two witnesses. Maybe this is going to work. Two, we got two. But according to Mark's record in Mark 15, 59, even these two men, as they came up and gave their testimony, their testimony didn't agree, which means that it too ought to have been tossed out. In Matthew, these two supposed witnesses testified in verse 61. This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. You can imagine it, right? The accusatory finger from these two as they singled Jesus out. This man. And what they did was charged him with treason. To act against the temple was, for the Jews, treasonous. And for the Romans, it was a political threat in that it would disturb the order of the region of this region in the empire. These two false witnesses misunderstood what Jesus had said because Jesus did indeed say something along these lines, but they took literally what Jesus meant metaphorically. In John chapter 2, verse 19, for example, in, two verses, uh, in two, John 2, 18 to 22, after turning over the tables of the money changers in the temple for the first time, we read this. The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. Jesus had never announced or threatened to desecrate or to destroy the temple, although he had told the disciples of its impending destruction. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 2, when he told them that not one stone will be left upon another in the temple complex that will not be thrown down. But even though this false testimony didn't measure up, even though they were 
unable to give a consistent story according to Mark, didn't measure up to the standard, Caiaphas still, we read in verse 62, stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? You see, things aren't going well for Caiaphas here. And so he jumped up out of his seat and he sought to have Jesus incriminate himself, which again, according to Jewish law, was illegal. In such a trial as this, the rabbis had declared that the defendant was to be protected from any self-incrimination due to the pressures and the stress of being tried in court. And yet here is Caiaphas in front of everybody, blatantly breaking the rules of the elders. And Jesus remained silent. Verse 63. Can you imagine, like, think about that for a second. As a parade of false witnesses continually comes and accuses Jesus of this or that, Caiaphas couldn't take it anymore. He jumps up and says, Do you have nothing to say about these things? I demand a response. What is your defense? But Jesus hadn't come to defend himself. He came to seek and to save the lost. And the way that that will come to pass had been prophesied long before Jesus took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Lord spoke through Isaiah 800 years earlier in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus in that moment knew the Father's will was for him to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And so he didn't answer any of the accusations that have been leveled against him by numerous false witnesses lying about him. What a level of control this must take. Because think about it. How quickly you and I will interject and blurt out defenses of ourselves at even the slightest accusations. How difficult is it for us to sit silently as people speak lies about us? I, I used to love watching Judge Judy. And in almost every single case, as one of either the defendant or the, um, the other one was detailing their version of the events, the other would interrupt with, Your Honor, that is a lie. And if you've ever watched Judge Judy, you know how she would respond to such blurting out. They simply could not remain silent, and many of them had actually done what it was that they were being accused of. But who is more innocent of any charge than Jesus Christ? And yet, he stands in this room among these liars seeking injustice against him, silent, not making any defense because he trusts the will and the protection of his Father in heaven. He simply went as he was led, which in this case is like a lamb led to the slaughter. What a model for you and I. This life can get so anxious and so 
difficult and we don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next, what a model Jesus is for us to trust in the will and the protection of our Father in heaven. To cast all of our anxieties on him and to trust him as you walk the path that he has set for you in this life knowing that whatever it is that, has, that is coming upon you has already passed through his hands and he will be guiding you and leading you through it. But the high priest continued to press Jesus for an answer. He needed Jesus to say something, anything that he could charge him with. So Caiaphas then cried out, I adjure you, verse 63, by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. You see, the testimony of the two witnesses wasn't going to stick, so a new question is asked by Caiaphas. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God, or not? And notice that phrase, I adjure you. That comes from Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1, where we read, If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet he does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. To hear a solemn command, to hear an authoritative obliging of anyone who has information about or is witness to a case in Israel who refuses to testify to the truth, that is an iniquity, that is a sin according to the law of God. Jewish law over time said that the high priest possessed this prerogative to authoritatively use this to force a person to answer a question. It wasn't to be used often, but they could do that, to testify under oath. And Caiaphas made use of this entitlement at this dark trial. And Jesus, unbelievably, Jesus respecting Jewish law will answer. Had Jesus wanted to mount a defense to prove his case, who could have done it better than Jesus? Who could have done so with more signs and more wonders and more proofs? Imagine Jesus looking at the crowds there and saying, didn't I heal your mom? Didn't I heal your son? Didn't I heal your sister? Didn't I heal you? Having them speak to his miraculous power. Imagine Jesus saying, legions of angels, come and testify. Jesus could even summon the demons who also know and shudder at the fact that he is the Son of God, come to us in the flesh. But what Jesus does here in verse 64 is he simply states the truth. Are you the Son of God? Yes. Yes, he is the exalted Son of God. See, in verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so. In other words, yes, it is as you say. Mark has it in verse four, four, chapter 14, 62. Jesus saying in answer, I am. We like to think, right, that the truth will settle all the issues, that when the truth is revealed, it will end all debate. But ultimately, ultimately, yes, that will be the case. Jesus, the truth, is and will be victorious. But for us here and now, living in a dark and corrupt world that for the most part despises Christ, oftentimes the proclamation of the truth of Christ only serves to increase anger, to increase the offense and increase the opposition of those to whom it is spoken. We all know this, right? It's one of the reasons that we are so prone to and disposed to lying to one another rather than being completely open with the truth to one another. 
We would rather talk about what someone does that annoys us behind their backs than go to them and say, you know, this is kind of annoying. This, this thing about you is a little bit of a, an annoyance. Be truthful. So here you've got, are you Messiah, Son of God? Yes. This is not a defense. This is a simple declaration of the truth. It is as you say, said Jesus. However, however, you notice there's a but there. But that doesn't mean what you think it means, Caiaphas. You assume that Messiah will be some sort of political agitator against Rome, but no, let me tell you what it means in verse 64. I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, so that you don't misunderstand what I mean here, Caiaphas, let me quote and allude to you for you two texts, Psalm 110 and Daniel 7:13, to make the point. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Caiaphas, this is who I am. And I will soon take my seat at the most honored and exalted spot in existence beside the throne of power, which is another way of saying the God of Israel, mighty and powerful. And I, Caiaphas, I will one day return to earth to rule on earth and to judge the cosmos. You haven't seen it yet, Caiaphas. You have not seen my reign in glory, but there is coming a day when you will see me seated in that exalted position. And on that day when I return, Caiaphas, it's not going to be you that's judging me. It will be me judging you. And I will return to judge, to rule, to reign, and to avenge every single wrong and every single injustice committed on the earth from the beginning to the end. Yes, Caiaphas, I go to the cross now in accordance with my Father's will to save all who believe in my name, but the day is coming when I will return in glory, and on that day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that I am Lord to the glory of the Father, and all my judgments will be declared in perfect justice. And Caiaphas, hearing this, tore his robes, which is another violation of the law. The high priest was not to tear his robes, as per Leviticus 21.10. And he shouted, He has uttered blasphemy! What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. He has slandered God. He has defamed and reviled the God of Israel by his testimony. But you and I know, in reality, all Jesus did was tell the truth. But Caiaphas does not want to believe him. And Caiaphas seized the moment and called for the verdict to be rendered right then and right there in violation of Jewish law. What is your judgment, he said. And the crowds all answered in unison at that moment, he deserves death. They rejected their Messiah. They rejected their king. He had just told them who he is and they rejected him. And not one person paused 
to consider all of the wonderful deeds Jesus had done. None of them seemed to remember his compassion, his care, his concern for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. No, they immediately called for his execution. And you see in this response, as you see this response, I want you to recognize that apart from the Spirit of God, this is how every one of humankind responds to Jesus in their own strength, in their own nature. Without his work in our souls, we are to see in this crowd a mirror into our own. We too would have joined in with the crowds on this night. We would have rejected him on this night. Without the Spirit working in our souls now, we reject him. Scripture is clear that we consider God by our natures an enemy. Left to ourselves, we are more like those who constructed the tower at Babel, committed to making a name for ourselves, than we are to honoring and exalting Christ. For you to be saved this morning, Jesus, the Spirit, had to act on your behalf. That's what Romans 5.10 says. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. For all of you who know Jesus Christ and are known by Jesus Christ this morning, this ought to lead you and I who've been reconciled to God in Christ to a deeper sense of our unworthiness for such a great honor. And in an inflamed, ardent, and impassioned worship of his name for so great a gift given to us who believe. Because left to our own natures, we would be like Adam and Eve in the garden. We would be like Israel in the wilderness. We would be like the disciples denying Jesus and fleeing from him. And we would be like these crowds calling for his condemnation. These are all mirrors into our own selves of what we would be apart from the glorious spirit of God working in each and every one of us. On this night, nobody gave any word of pause. They spit in his face. They struck him. They slapped him. But Jesus, in closing, for the sake of your salvation, provided you believe in his name today, allowed and permitted all of these injustices to fall upon himself as he pressed on toward the cross to bear your sin on his shoulders to take upon himself your sin in your place as your substitute. All of this was for the glory of his Father in your salvation, your redemption, and your forgiveness. And praise the Lord Jesus Christ for his meekness, for the power under control, for his walking this path for your sake, for enduring this injustice, because he did, you are redeemed here today if you believe in his name. If you don't believe, you also can be redeemed by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Because he endured all of this and ultimately went to the cross and died there and bore upon himself the wrath of God that is due against you for your sin. If you call out to him in faith and trust and belief, you too can be redeemed, saved, adopted into the family of God and given the most precious gift of eternal life with him. And it's all thanks to Jesus Christ.
Father, we thank you and we praise you for the model and the example that is our Lord Jesus, who bore up under all of this injustice for our sake, who did all of this to see to it that we would be given the gift of eternal life by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray for those of us who are saved this morning that we would rejoice and we would be thankful to the Lord Jesus for everything he's done for us, recognizing our unworthiness for so great a gift and thanking him, the lover of our souls, for doing it all. For those of us who aren't saved here but who are, who've been dragged here by a family member or who have just decided to come in here this morning, I pray that they would see you in a new light today that they would see the all-glorious Lord Jesus Christ calling out to them, believe and be saved. Turn from your sin and turn to me and be saved. I offer you eternal life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Come to me. I pray that you would allow them, bring them to a place where they respond and they're saved this morning. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.